Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live. This one line from the Bible set in motion a bloody persecution. Leading to the death of 3,000 women in England, Wales and Scotland. A superstitious witch-hunting frenzy that reached its peak in the 1600s. My name is Mark Zakian and I'm joined by my Blue Badge colleague, Laura Adams from Women Inspire. And we are investigating the history of women and witchcraft. Stories of pagan priestesses, seers, diviners and sorceresses. Hear about the bizarre and cruel rituals of witch ducking and trial by urine. Welcome to our podcast. We will have you spellbound. 2,000 years ago, a line of women stood defiant against the overpowering might of the Roman army. They were the Banduri. Female druids. Celtic rulers. Making their last stand on Innis Mon. The Isle of Anglesey in North Wales. The female Celts were powerful. As fearsome as the men who stood alongside them. The Romans gave us a history of the Banderai, Telling us that these black-clad wise women fought in wars, participated in assemblies, negotiated treaties and mediated quarrels. Druid is a Celtic word, meaning all-seeing shamans with mystical powers. In the ancient Celtic saga of the Battle of Moitura, druidesses enchanted the rocks and trees to help their army. We know the names of some of these witches and seers. There was Gael Cossack, white-legged of Donegal in Ireland. And Druid Ganna, who made a diplomatic trip to Rome to meet the Emperor's son, Dolmitian. So, how did you become a druid priestess? The Celts rarely used written language, so everything had to be learned off by heart. It took 19 years to master skills in alchemy, law and medicine. They were healers, using herbal cures to help the sick. Druids worshipped female gods and sacred figures. There are records of covens of druidesses living together on river islands. A sort of witch's coven. The Romans were determined to wipe out the Druids. And the Celts made their last stand in their sacred home of Anglesey. The Roman historian Tacitus recorded the bloodshed. On the shore stood the forces of the Druid enemy. A dense array of arms and men, with women dashing through the ranks like the Furies pouring forth their dire imprecations with their hands uplifted towards the heavens, they struck terror into the soldiers. Urged on by their officers, the Roman cavalrymen swam their horses to the island, while the infantry made their crossing in boats. They bore down upon them, smote all who opposed them to the earth and wrapped them in the flames they had themselves kindled. The Celts, women and children, armed and unarmed, young and old, fell under the swords of the Romans. The bodies of the dead and dying unceremoniously hurled onto makeshift funeral piles. 
marking the end of a society where women were as powerful as men. The end of a culture that revered cunning women as seers, healers and rulers. The end of Britain's first witches. A few days before Halloween in 1441, Marjorie Jordmain's life was in peril. The old woman was hauled in front of church court. Accused of being a royal witch. Marjorie was a seer, trusted by clerics, courtiers and monarchs. Extraordinary company for the lowly wife of a cowherd. But her dark arts led her into trouble. In 1431, she was one of seven witches arrested in London. And hauled off to prison in Windsor Castle. Spending months in the cells for practising black magic. Accused of curing the sick with herbal potions. Only released when she promised to stop using charms and incantations. But she did not stop. Gaining the trust of one of the most powerful women in England. Eleanor Cobham was English aristocracy. First mistress, then wife to Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester. The Duke was Lord Protector, running the country while little King Henry VI was too young to rule. Duke Humphrey was next in line to the throne if young King Henry died. He was shrewd, suave, clever, a Renaissance prince. And his Duchess, Eleanor, was celebrated as a... Woman distinguished in her form, beautiful, intelligent and ambitious. Together, they were the ultimate medieval power couple. The Duchess was devoted to astrology. She employed Marjorie Jordmain to bewitch her husband the Duke into loving her. And conspired with her to see if her husband could become king. Asking the witch to make a poppet. A wax effigy of King Henry that was burned in front of a fire and melted to cause the boy king to languish and die. When stories of this sorcery spread, Marjorie was arrested for treason and taken to the Tower of London. Accused of... Compassing the death of the king. Eleanor fled to Westminster Abbey in search of sanctuary. But was refused. Instead, put on trial. The Duchess confessed to employing Marjorie, the Witch of Eye, as a necromancer. Eleanor's marriage was dissolved and she was banished from the court and imprisoned for life. Dying at Beaumaris Castle in Anglesey in 1452. Sorceress Marjorie was tried by the Archbishop's court. Condemned. Not for witchcraft. Which would not become a legal crime for another century. But for predicting the death of the king. That was treason. She was taken to Smithfield and burnt at the stake. Marjorie, the witch of I, is remembered in this poem. There was a bell day called the witch of I. Old Mother Madge, her neighbours did her name. Which wrought wonders in the country by hearsay. Both fiends and fairies her charming would obey, and dead corpses from graves she could uprear. Such an enchantress at that time had no peer. In September 1589, 
Anne of Denmark set sail for Scotland to meet her new husband, King James VI. She never made it. Queen Anne's fleet was battered by a violent storm. One ship sank. Anne's boat nearly capsized. The convoy limped back home. Where the Danish admiral in charge of the voyage claimed that the tempest was the work of witches. King James decided to set out from Scotland to collect his queen. But his crossing was also delayed by storms. And when James finally arrived in Denmark, two witches were arrested. Who confessed to conjuring up the violent weather that battered the royal ships. Because Satan wanted the monarchs dead. The women were burnt at the stake. On the royal couple's return to Scotland, their boats were rocked by more storms. And so began King James's obsession with witchcraft. So possessed was the king with the fear of sorcery that he wrote a book, Demonology, by the high and mighty prince, James. The title covered everything, from necromancy, black magic and divination, to werewolves and vampires. The king began his book, The fearful abounding at this time in this country of these detestable slaves of the devil, the witches and enchanters hath moved me to resolve that such assaults of Satan merit most severely to be punished. This was a mandate for the Scottish to hunt witches. The persecution began with the torture of the supposed witch, housemaid Galis Duncan. One journal reporting... Her master did, with the help of others, torment her with the torture of the pellywinks. Pillywinks are thumbscrews, crushing the bones and fingers to obtain a confession. Gillis endured terrible pain, but would not confess to something she had not done. So her master began wrenching her head with rope. Still no confession. Furious, he searched her body, finding a so-called witch's mark on her neck. For some reason, this finally broke Gillis, who confessed... I've done is by witchcraft, and with the enticements of the devil himself, I journeyed to a town where a witch was received in the service of the devil, and danced in the rack with the others. We don't know why poor Gillis said this. Maybe to end the torture. The maid went on to say she was part of a coven, giving up the names of other witches. Stating they were in league with the Danish witches who attempted to murder King James and his queen. On hearing this, the king became directly involved in the case. Ordering midwife Agnes Samson, the coven leader, to be brought to the royal palace of Holyrood House. Where extraordinarily she was interrogated by the king himself. Midwife Samson also confessed to the attempted murder of the royals. We met at the kirk at North Berwick. Our plan was to arrange a storm for staying of the Queen's coming here, and that the Queen would never come. So I did place some parts of a dead cat in a sieve, washed it out to sea to wreck the King's boat. And according to the King, Agnes also repeated private, intimate conversations between James and his queen. In doing this, Agnes had signed her own death warrant. Maybe to end her incarceration in one of the most terrible prisons of the realm. Agnes and the other accused were brought to Castle Hill. 
where they were garroted and then burnt. Some 70 people were executed. Gillis retracted her statement, saying that she only confessed because she was tortured. But to no avail, and the poor housemaid was sent to the pyre. The North Berwick Witch Trial was the signal for persecutions across Scotland. Over the next 150 years, some 3,000 women were executed for accusations of witchcraft. And when James became King of England in 1603... He brought the torture and harassment south. It's 1612 in the marshy shadows of Pendle Hill in Lancashire. A ragged-clothed beggar, young Alison Device, treads the remote country track leading to Trawden Forest. Walking towards her is Yorkshire peddler John Law. Will they give me some pins, sir? begs Alison. That's got no money. Get thee away! came the quick reply. As the peddler walks on, Alison curses him for his meanness. May you go to hell, sir. Suddenly, from nowhere, a fiery-eyed black dog appears. The beast speaks to Alison, offering to lame the peddler. John Law stumbles a few steps, then falls to the ground, crawling to a nearby inn for refuge and help. Peddler John's misfortune was to meet a member of the Demdike family, who lived at Malkin Tower, under Pendle Hill. It sounds grand, but in truth, it was a damp, remote hovel. Malkin is a 17th century word for slattern or slut. The grandmother of the clan was Old Demdike, an octogenarian cunning woman who worked her 50 years of healing across the Pendle Valley. Old Demdike lived with her daughter, Mother Elizabeth, and grandchildren James, Janet, and our beggar, Alison. Alison probably begged the pins for use in healing, divination and love magic. A few days after the incident, the peddler's son took Alison to visit his stricken father. Where she confessed to cursing him and begged forgiveness. But instead of a pardon, the outraged peddler's son reported the incident to a local magistrate. The zealous and ambitious Roger Knoll. Who questioned the beggar. Alison stated... Two years gone, me grandmother, what people knows as old Demdike, we was walking together. There appeared a black dog, speaking unto her and desiring her to give him her soul, granting that he would give her power to do anything she would. The black dog did, with his mouth, suck at her breast, a little below her paps. Then happened that Richard Baldwin of the Forest of Pendle argued out with me grandmother Demdike. He would not let her walk upon his land. Then a child of the said Richard Baldwin's was fallen sick. Methink grandmother did bewitch the child and curse the child to death. As well as accusing her grandmother and own family, Alison pointed the finger at a neighbouring household, the Chattox clan. Magistrate Noel was convinced he was dealing with a major witch hunt. Determined to root the evil witches out of Pendle, he made his arrests. So Alison, her young sister Janet, Old Demdike and the Chattox clan were shipped off to Lancaster Castle to await trial. 
leaving the rest of the family at Malkin Tower. On Good Friday 1612, when the community was expected in Pendle Church, Mother Elizabeth held a meeting at the Malkin. What happened next became legend. The coven plotted to stop the trial. But news got out. And the local constable came to arrest the witches. Accused of trying to destroy Lancaster Castle. And charged with plotting to kill by sorcery. Leading to the most notorious witch trial in British history. The Witch's Tower at the medieval Lancaster Castle is little more than 15 feet square. The Pendle families, Demdike and Chattox, some 20 people, were crammed into the damp, dirty dungeon with little food and no toilet. After two months in the cramped, filthy cell, old Demdike died. Two months later, in August 1612, the trial finally began. Court. court clerk Thomas Potts seized his opportunity for fame, recording the events of the showcase trial in a book. When Mother Elizabeth was put in the dock, this was Potts' gruesome description of her appearance. Unched, frail and filthy. Grasping at railings with horrible thin fingers, her face were evil, her mouth pulled downwards into a grimace, her chin sagged, her skin so grey it almost shone. It were her eyes, however, that revolted me most. This odious witch, branded with a preposterous mark of nature, which were that her left eye standing lower than the other, the one looking down, the other looking up, so strangely deformed as those that were present at the assembly did affirm they had not seen the like. Accused of killing three people with witchcraft, Mother Elizabeth protested her innocence. But then the star witness was brought in. Elizabeth's nine-year-old daughter, Janet. The mother was furious, yelling, What's thee doing, child? What's thee saying about me? Little Janet burst into tears and asked, I would that me mother be taken from the court before I should speak. With Elizabeth gone, Janet jumped up onto the table, centre stage, and calmly denounced her. Me mother be a witch, and that I know to be true. I have seen her spirit in the likeness of a brown dog she calls Ball. The dog did ask what she would have him do, and mother answered that she would have it help her to kill John Robinson, James Robinson, and Henry Mitten. Asked about what happened at the Good Friday gathering at the Malkin, she said, At twelve, Good Friday last, about twenty people came to me house. Me mother told me they were all witches. Janet went on to name all of the people at the party. Then Janet's older brother, James, took the stand, also accusing his family. Twelve year gone and Chattox at Newchurch in Pendle, 
did tack three schools of people what had been buried and two cake teeth out from said bones, whereof she kept four to herself and gave to the four to Grandmother Dendike. The four teeth found at Malkin Tower were presented at court, alongside a clay figure found buried in the ground. But Janet turned on her brother. James were a witch for three years. As in his spirit killed three people, he spoke these charms. No, Lord, I am stead with stick and stake that I can neither sleep nor wake. Potts was impressed by Janet's testimony. Although she were very young, yet it were wonderful to the court with what modesty Government and understanding she delivered this evidence against the prisoner at the bar, being her own natural brother. Also on trial were Alice Nutter and her family. The judge needed more evidence against respectable, well-to-do women, so he arranged an identity parade, asking who had been at the gathering. One by one, Janet picked them out. You were there on Good Friday. You had on the prettiest dress. You ate mutton. You were sitting right by me. The jury were convinced of their guilt. The judge turned to the accused. It only remains that I pronounce the judgment of the court against you by the king's authority. Which is, you shall all go from hence to the castle from whence you came. And thence you shall be carried to the place of execution for this county, where your bodies shall be hanged until you be dead. And God have mercy upon your souls. The day after the trial, the condemned were brought to Gallows Hill. Mother Elizabeth her daughter Alison and 14-year-old son James, Anne Whittle, Anne Redfern, Alice Nutter, Catherine Hewitt, John Bullock and Jane Bullock. As the condemned were led out, the crowd went quiet. They didn't die from broken necks. The gallows were not high enough. But from strangulation over 20 long, horrible minutes. The condemned were given a last chance to confess. Mother Elizabeth and Alice Nutter pled their innocence. But like the rest, they were hanged on that dark day in Lancashire. January 1712, in the little village of Walken in Hertfordshire. Servant Matthew Gilston is tending to the barn of his master, John Chapman. A hooded woman approaches him. Will he give me some straw, sir? He refuses. The woman walks away. Suddenly, Gilston is unable to work. 
Then he starts running, running, running. Three miles to a nearby town. And asks for some straw. Refused, he starts running again. Towards some dung heaps. Where he collects the straw and wraps it in his shirt. And runs back to Walken. Some supernatural force pushing on his task. Claiming he was... Forced by a witch. Gilston tells his master the story. Master Chapman confronts the hooded woman, Jane Wenham. Accusing her of being... A witch and a bitch. Wenham does not take this lightly. And goes to the town judge, Chansey. Denouncing Chapman for accusing her of being a witch. Two days later, the pair are in court. Judge Chansey has heard stories of Wenham being a cunning woman. And puts the verdict in the hands of the town priest, Reverend Gardner. Who orders Chapman to pay Wenham one shilling. Insulted. Wenham storms out of the courthouse shouting, If I cannot have justice here, I will have it elsewhere. At Reverend Gardner's rectory, the vicar discovers his maid screaming on the floor, semi-naked. She too had been overtaken by the running curse. Causing her to run and run and run for miles. She becomes hysterical, possessed. And confronts Jane Wenham scratching her deeper and deeper, but unable to draw blood. In those times, pricking without drawing blood was the sign of a witch. Wenham is brought back in front of the judges. This time tried for witchcraft. And the judges ask her to recite the Lord's Prayer. Wenham tries many times, but is unable to speak it. Stumbling over the lines. Uh, Our Father, who, who art in heaven... Hallowed be thy name. Lead us not in, 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 into evil. Wenham admits that she had been a witch for... Sixteen many years. With many villagers now coming forward to declare curses and evil brought upon them by Wenham. But the judge is sceptical. When one witness testifies that Wenham was able to fly... The judge replied... There's no law against flying. But when the judge asked the jury... Do you find her guilty of conversing with the devil in the shape of a cat? The answer came... We do. So Wenham was condemned under the Witchcraft and Conjuration Act of 1604. But the judge was not prepared to see someone punished for superstitious gossip. And travels to London to ask Queen Anne for a pardon. We can imagine that a female monarch had some sympathy and insight into the fate of an older single woman. And the Queen pardoned the Witch of Walken. Wenham lived out the rest of her life in the care of generous local gentry until her death from natural causes in 1729. The story marked the end of an era. Jane Wenham was the last woman in England tried for being a witch bringing an end to state executions based on nothing more than superstitious hearsay and bogus evidence. In 1736, Parliament passed an act repealing the laws against witchcraft. Replacing it by imposing fines or imprisonment on people who claim to be able to use magical powers. But the majority of the population of 18th century England continued to believe in witchcraft. And the persecution of witches would not end with the Walken Witch Trial. A woman whose only offence 
is that the heavy hand of time hath graven deep furrows in her face and silvered her head with grey. There is not a single sentence, no, not a single word from which it is possible to infer that there ever was, at any period in the world, a human creature who possessed a preternatural power derived from the devil. Nor is there the least foundation in it for believing that there ever existed such a thing as a witch or a wizard. This message was delivered from the pulpit of Reverend Nicholson, desperate to stop the persecution of Anne Izzard. Anne was a living servant at a farm in Great Paxton, Cambridgeshire. Described as a small, mean village of 217 inhabitants, living mainly in mud-walled cottages. When Anne started a relationship with Wright, a worker on the farm, she was dismissed. With a baby and no income, Anne and Wright moved to a neighbouring village for parish relief. This help for the poor was traditionally paid from a home parish, and local officials would go to great lengths to rid themselves of anyone they believed was the responsibility of another parish. So the couple were forced to return to Great Paxton and were housed in a small cottage away from the main village. But the payments ended when their son found employment. Without parish relief, the family became very poor. And stories of Anne begging for food travelled the village. With claims she was not just a beggar, but also a witch. The parents of Alice Brown, who was an epileptic, accused Anne of causing their daughter to fall ill. Alice Brown's father was determined to prove Anne bewitched his daughter. So filled a bottle with urine and put a cork in the neck embedded with pins. Heated the bottle by the fire, hoping this would bring on visions of the witch responsible. Unsurprisingly, this didn't work. Local curate Reverend Isaac Nicholson tried to calm the villagers. To no avail. As he recorded... A number of people assembled as it grew dark on Sunday evening, taking with them the young woman ridiculously supposed to be bewitched. And about ten o'clock, proceeded to the cottage of Wright Izzard, which stands alone at some distance from the body of the village. When they arrived at this solitary spot, favourable for their villainous designs, they broke into the poor man's house, dragged his wife out of bed and threw her naked into the yard, where her arms were torn with pins, her head was dashed against the large stones of the causeway and her face Stomach and breast were severely bruised with a thick stick that served as a bar to the door. Having thus satisfied themselves, the mob dispersed and the woman then crawled into her house. Anne was taken in by a neighbour, Mrs Alice Russell, who bandaged her arms and saw to her wounds. Alice, too, was threatened by the crowd, who accused her of also being a witch. She was so upset by these accusations that she suffered a seizure and died. Despite the death of kind-hearted Alice, Anne was once again dragged from her bed, beaten and torn with pins, with the villagers threatening to duck her in the pond. This so-called test for witchcraft worked by throwing the victim into water. 
If they sank, they were innocent, and if they floated, they were proclaimed rich. Even if you were proved innocent, it was a deadly victory if you weren't pulled from the water in time. The villagers who attacked Anne were arrested, tried and sentenced to a month's imprisonment in Huntington Jail. Despite all this turmoil and hatred, Anne and her family remained at Great Paxton. But when villagers accused Anne's daughter of witchcraft... The family moved to St Neots. Unfortunately for Anne, stories of her witchcraft followed her. Children would call her names and tease her. And tales that she could be seen riding her broomstick over the churchyard were still being told over a hundred years later. In 1838, Anne passed away aged 93. And was buried in St Mary's Churchyard, St Neots, in an unmarked grave. On the night of the 19th of January, 1944, Helen Duncan was performing a seance when the police burst in. Officers struggled to control the chaotic scene. After order had been restored, Helen was arrested. Helen Duncan was a showwoman who travelled throughout Britain. Holding regular seances where she would summon up ghosts of dead people by emitting a cloud-like substance from her mouth. Spirits were said to appear, talking and even touching their relatives in the audience. During the Second World War, Duncan's activities attracted the attention of the establishment. Specifically, a seance where she contacted a deceased sailor from the HMS Barham who revealed that his ship had been sunk in the Mediterranean. As there was no public news of the ship having been lost, this seemed like an extraordinary act of premonition. In one of the most sensational episodes in wartime Britain, Duncan was put on trial at the Old Bailey in London. Accused under the Witchcraft Act of 1735. A law that had not been used for more than a century. Duncan was sentenced to nine months in London's Holloway Prison. The real reason for the prosecution was that 861 seamen had died on the torpedoed ship. But for propaganda reasons, the War Office did not release this information until several months later. And it's likely that Duncan had spoken to one of the relatives who had told her about the family loss. Using this knowledge to create the illusion that she could predict the future. Duncan was released from prison in September 1944. But the authorities continued to pursue her. With the police raiding another private seance led by Duncan in Nottingham, searching for evidence of fraud. Five weeks later, the woman who is remembered as the last witch died. And in 1951, the witchcraft laws were finally repealed ending 500 years of superstitious religious and state persecution of so-called witches. This Extraordinary Stories of Britain podcast was written by Mark Zakian and featured Laura Adams from Women Inspire. The music was by Scott Buckley and Demise to Shield by Ghost Rifter. To hear our other podcasts, visit www.storiesofbritain and follow us on Twitter at Stories of Britain.